You're listening to Pastola Endocrine Podcast with your host, Dr. Sirapoon McKay. Hello and welcome back to Pestola Endocrine Podcast. In this last episode on adrenal, we will take a closer look at adrenal insufficiency. We will be discussing clinical symptoms, physical exam findings, as well as common laboratory findings and more. Joining me to discuss adrenal insufficiency is our guest expert, Dr. Sophia Ebenezer. Dr. Ebenezer is a medical director of the bariatric surgery program at Texas Children's Hospital, as well as assistant professor of pediatric endocrinology at Baylor College of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Ebenezer. It's a pleasure to have you join us on this important topic. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. When should a physician consider a diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency? So in acute adrenal insufficiency, which is considered an endocrine emergency, um, and this is something we would see in the emergency room or in the ICU, patients can present with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, hypotension, and even shock. And it can rapidly lead to death if it's not treated. So in regards to the hypotension, if you have a patient that's not responding to pressors, this would be suggestive, suggestive of adrenal insufficiency. Um, lab findings may include hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, hypoglycemia. And in children, if there's been a setting of fasting or fevers, infections, nausea and vomiting, that hypoglycemia can be severe. Um, and so when you're in this emergent setting, things to do right away is to is to treat with fluid boluses, um, as well as dextrose-containing fluids. If the hyperkalemia is associated with EKG changes, then you wanna be using KXLID or insulin, um, as well as treating the underlying disorder with glucocorticoids um, and mineralocorticoids if necessary. In the newborn setting, the newborn screen has really allowed for detection of adrenal insufficiency before they're symptomatic. And so particularly in males where affected males may not have um, exam findings that would lead you to think of adrenal insufficiency or CAH, um, the newborn screen is very important. In the clinic setting, the diagnosis can be a little bit more difficult. So patients can have more nonspecific symptoms and it can be over a period of time, sometimes over years. These symptoms and signs uh, depend on the hormones that are deficient as well as those are, that are in excess like the androgens. So symptoms can include weakness, fatigue, anorexia, weight loss, those are all pretty consistent with adrenal insufficiency. Other clinical features can include hyperpigmentation, GI disturbances, salt cravings. And in children, looking at the growth chart is really important because there, there can be growth failure. Uh, 
in terms of the weight, if there is unexplained weight loss, then adrenal insufficiency should definitely be on the differential. So if there's androgen excess, so as in an infant with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, um, in a baby girl, you can see variable degrees of posterior fusion of the labia, hypertrophy of the clitoris. In the male infant, those adrenal androgens are not gonna have an effect on the external genitalia. Um, for older kids, so later in life, that hypersecretion of androgens can cause the early appearance of pubic hair, followed by axillary hair, acne, voice deepening. Um, the elevated androgens in infancy and early childhood can lead to rapid skeletal maturation and will result in short stature as an adult if it is untreated or inadequately treated. Tell us how you would we would differentiate between central and primary adrenal insufficiency. Yes, so primary adrenal insufficiency results from either destruction or dysfunction of the adrenal cortex. Secondary adrenal insufficiency is referring to deficient ACTH secretion. So primary adrenal insufficiency can have various ideologies. It can be autoimmune, we also call that Addison's disease. It can be caused by congenital adrenal hyperplasia it can occur from adrenal hemorrhage or infections. Um, in many parts of the world, TB is a common cause of primary adrenal insufficiency, but it's not something that we see much in the US. Um, also, there's genetic causes such as X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy or adrenal hypoplasia. Um, medications can cause it as well, like ketoconazole, infiltrative processes. So all of these can explain primary adrenal insufficiency. One exam finding that would clue you in on the diagnosis of primary adrenal insufficiency is that they may have hyperpigmentation of the skin. So the melanocytes are stimulated by high levels of alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, which is secreted with ACTH from the anterior pituitary gland. Both are cleavage products from pro-opial melanocortin. If a patient um, does not seem to really be, it does not seem obvious that they are hyperpigmented because maybe they had a good reason. Maybe they just went on a beach vacation. This is when looking at areas that haven't been exposed to the sun uh, will be a key. Also on exam, you may see darkening in the creases of the palms, um, inside the mouth and the gums, on the nail beds, if you look at pressure areas such as the knuckles, the toes, the elbows, the knees, that skin may look darker, freckles may look darker. So these exam findings are helpful in supporting that diagnosis before you even have any labs done. In regards to labs, hyponatremia is a common finding in both primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency. So glucocorticoids exert a negative feedback on vasopressin secretion and deficiency of cortisol may result in stimulation of vasopressin and hyponatremia. If a patient has coexisting diabetes insipidus from vasopressin deficiency and they have adrenal insufficiency, they may not have any symptoms of DI until the glucocorticoid therapy unmasks the need for vasopressin replacement. 
For labs in primary adrenal insufficiency, in addition to hyponatremia, they can have hyperkalemia due to mineralocorticoid deficiency. In secondary adrenal insufficiency, the pituitary secretion of ACTH is deficient, so we do not expect to see the hyperpigmentation. Also, mineralocorticoid secretion is usually normal, so hyperkalemia is not present. Like I mentioned earlier, these patients can have, can have hyponatremia as a result of water retention, but it's not accompanied by hyperkalemia. They can have hypoglycemia usually, but not as severe. If a patient is diagnosed with adrenal insufficiency, it is important to determine the cause. For primary adrenal insufficiency, if there's no history of hemorrhage or infection or anything else to explain it, it would be reasonable to start with 21 hydroxylase antibodies to evaluate for autoimmune adrenal disease. If they are positive for that, then you want to be thinking about other autoimmune diseases, such as type 1 diabetes, autoimmune thyroid disease, celiac disease, vitiligo, alopecia. So these combinations are known as polyglandular autoimmune syndrome and would warrant some genetic testing. If a patient is autoantibody negative with primary adrenal insufficiency, you should be thinking about genetic causes. So boys who have autoantibody negative adrenal insufficiency should also have very long chain fatty acids checked to identify excellent adrenal leukodystrophy. For secondary adrenal insufficiency, if you don't have a history of steroid use, then you wanna consider malformations of the brain, tumors, uh, trauma, infectious processes. Want to think about what other medicines they might have been on, whether they've been had any uh, radiation history. Um, and if you are concerned about secondary adrenal insufficiency, you should also be screening for other pituitary deficiencies. That's a very complete um, list of things to look for for primary um, as well as, as central adrenal insufficiency. Could you tell us a little bit more about the making a, diagnost, a diagnosis based on um, testing? Yes. In the past, the most validated testing for the function of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis was the insulin stress test. If there was an intact HPA axis, the hypoglycemia would cause ACTH and growth hormone release from the pituitary and the subsequent cortisol release from the adrenal glands. This test would really test the functioning of the entire HPA axis. The hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal glands need to function appropriately in order to have a normal cortisol response. But uh, this test means that we would be subjecting our patients to hypoglycemia so it's not really viewed as safe to perform. And so now we do an ACTH stimulation test um, to help us diagnose uh, adrenal insufficiency. Various institutions may use different protocols in practice with regards to, the, to whether the drug is administered IV or IM, uh, the duration of the test, the dose of cosyntropin given. Um, in general, the standard dose ACTH stimulation test refers to where, when 250 micrograms of cosyntropin is administered as a, 
as an IV bolus. We do use a smaller dose of cosentropin and a small infant. We use the 125 micrograms instead, but everyone else gets the higher dose. Cortisol levels are checked at time zero before cosentropin is administered and then 30 minutes after and then 60 minutes after. Traditionally, a peak cortisol less than 18 is suggestive of adrenal insufficiency. In practice, we use this test more when we suspect primary adrenal insufficiency. Some also refer to the standard dose ACTH stimulation test as a high dose test. In the low dose ACTH stimulation test, a more physiologic dose, and that's gonna be one microgram of cosentropin is given. The cortisol response to one microgram of cosentropin correlates better with the cortisol response in an insulin-induced hypoglycemia in patients with chronic secondary adrenal insufficiency. So we generally use this low-dose test if we are more concerned about secondary adrenal insufficiency. The traditional cutoff is a cortisol of less than 18 as suggestive of adrenal insufficiency. There's some debate as to what that cutoff value should be for the stimulated cortisol level. There was a study that proposed a lower cutoff of 14.5 um, because it would reduce the number of false positive results. Whatever the case is, probably the most important thing to uh, remember when doing this test it is it's a small volume of cosentropin that's being administered. So the technique which is administered is important. It should be, um, be given through an IV port with minimal tubing. If a patient is diagnosed with adrenal insufficiency, uh, a plasma ACTH level can help differentiate between primary and secondary also. In patients with primary adrenal insufficiency, the ACTH level would be very high. In patients with secondary adrenal insufficiency, the ACTH would be inappropriately normal or low. So the ACTH level is really quite valuable in the workup it is consistently elevated in primary AI. Even um, early in the course of adrenal insufficiency, it's elevated, even before there's a significant reduction in the basal cortisol or in its response to a stimulation test. One thing to remember when ordering this is that it can be elevated during the recovery of the HPA axis from secondary adrenal insufficiency, so we should be mindful in interpreting it. And, you know, one of our challenges in pediatrics is we have to account for a growing child. Um, could you address in pediatrics um, what, how we would dose um, tr the treatment as the child grows? The aim of therapy is to give replacement doses of hydrocortisone to mimic the body's normal cortisol secretion. The replacement dose of steroids produces a negative feedback on the hypothalamic pituitary axis, reducing the corticotropin releasing hormone, ACTH, and this in turn suppresses the excessive secretion of cortisol precursors and in CAH also the adrenal androgens. The normal cortisol secretion rate is six to seven milligrams per meter squared per day, but can be higher up to 15 milligrams per meter squared per day. The specific form of adrenal insufficiency guides therapy, um, but treatment plans really should be personalized and patients should be monitored closely for signs of over-treatment or under-treatment, 
both of which are undesirable. So it's a delicate balance. Overtreatment can cause signs and symptoms of Cushing syndrome and can impair growth, which is really important in our growing children. The specific form formulation of glucocorticoid use should be considered carefully. For example, um, potent long-acting glucocorticoids like dexamethasone or prednisone are not appropriate in children, although commonly used in adults. As children are continually growing, it's, a, it's important to adjust their doses and they may need adjustments more frequently than adults would. And these changes are done more easily with the weaker glucocorticoid. So the one that we use more commonly is hydrocortisone. Now, if a patient is only on glucocorticoid replacement, titration is based more on the clinical picture than labs. So if a patient clearly has signs of iatrogenic Cushing syndrome, like facial plethora or easy bruising, this, this would suggest the dose is too high. But if they are having weight loss and low energy and poor appetite, then they may need a higher dose. Some patients are on twice-daily dosing, and if twice-daily dosing does not seem to cover the whole day, then we should consider dosing three times a day instead. For CAH, under-treatment is um, particularly undesirable because it leads to overproduction of adrenal androgens, and that leads to epiphyseal maturation and ultimately comp compromised adult growth. So in CAH, we usually follow some labs, including 17-hydroxyprogesterone and androstenedione. It's acceptable in a child with CAH for the 17-hydroxyprogesterone to be above the reference range. Values above 1,000 would be suggestive of undertreatment, but you don't necessarily want a normal 17-hydroxyprogesterone either, as that would be indicative of overtreatment. Of course, we also would be closely following height bone age, weight. Um, in terms of dosing for size, it seems that in infancy, the required dose is higher than it is in adults um, in childhood, and that it seems to increase again um, at the time of puberty. For primary adrenal insufficiency, generally, we do not follow the cortisol levels once a patient is on therapy. So we use it for diagnosis, but we don't use it to follow uh, once they're on therapy. ACTH also does not need to be followed. It can remain high even on appropriate doses of glucocorticoids. For patients on mineralocorticoids, they should have normal blood pressures, normal plasma renin levels, and normal potassium. So labs for patients who have mineralocorticoid deficiency would include electrolytes and renin level as well. For an infant with CAH who is who has salt-wasting CAH, they may require salt supplementation because breast milk and formula provides very little salt. Once the diet becomes more varied and includes more solid foods, which are usually rich in sodium, the salt supplementation is no longer needed. That's a very thorough summary of the various types of adrenal insufficiency. One thing I didn't get to touch on was that in times of illness, the maintenance dose of steroids should be increased. So if uh, a child is on steroids and has severe illness, so vomiting several times, being lethargic, uh, the provider should know how to give stress dosing as well as the, the family. One trick that I learned uh, when I was in training was 
to think about the dose in terms of the size of the child. So a small infant, a child that you would kind of be able to rock, an appropriate dose would be 25 milligrams. In a toddler up until the preschool years, an appropriate dose of the IV hydrocortisone or solucortep would be 50 milligrams. A school-aged child would be 75 milligrams. And a child whose adult size essentially would be 100 milligrams. And so this trick may be helpful if you're in an ER setting or in your setting where you don't ex exactly have their weight and height and are able to calculate what an ex exact dose should be. That's a very useful tip. Thank you, Dr. Ebenezer, for joining us for such a thorough and insightful discussion on adrenal insufficiency. You're listening to Pastola Endocrine Podcast. Pastola, pediatric endocrinologist of Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. For more information about Pastola, please visit pastola.org.